You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read verses 9 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 through 18. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who who are being tempted. This is God's word. Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. Andy Williams once sang that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, and there are many reasons to rejoice at Christmas time. I hope you're off work or school a little bit. Maybe you'll spend some fun time with family or friends. Perhaps you're expecting some really nice presents tomorrow, or you're excited about giving a really great gift to someone you love. If you're like me, you're looking forward to some good bowl games later this week. There are indeed many things to enjoy this time of year, many reasons to be glad. But today I want to talk with you about the most important reason we should rejoice this Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And today I want to tell you why the birth of Jesus is so important. And when I say it's important, I don't simply mean that the birth of Jesus is historically significant, although it is. But more than that, the birth of Jesus is personally significant for each of us. And today I want you to know why that is the case, why Jesus' birth impacts you so tremendously and why it should cause you to greatly rejoice in this Christmas season. And we're going to see that today as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. And you can find the verses uh, printed in the back of today's bulletin, 
or again on page 942 of the Bibles in your seat backs. Today we're going to talk about five reasons why Jesus was born, and I'm not going to list all these reasons now so that you listen carefully, but if you just can't stand it and you need to know what all my points are, they're listed in the bullet. But let's start now with the first reason why Jesus was born. Jesus was born so that God the Son would become human as we are human. Friends, God exists, and there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this one God is the only God that exists. Isaiah 45.5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. And this one real God is infinite in goodness, righteousness, love, justice, grace, mercy, holiness, and power. And the scripture tells us that this one God eternally exists as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is why Jesus commands believers be baptized in Matthew 28 in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This one God exists eternally as three persons. And as we discuss the birth of Jesus today, we're talking about something amazing that happened which concerns the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Now make no mistake, God the Son is fully and truly God just like the Father. Earlier in this book of Hebrews, we read about the Son in chapter 1 verse 3, that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1.2 tells us that by the Son the Father created all things, and Hebrews 1.3 says He, the Son, upholds the universe by the very word of His power. See, the Son of God is truly God in every respect, in His nature and His work. He is what God is. He does what God does. And yet, God the Son chose to step into this world and take on true humanity. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Just as we have flesh and blood, God the Son took on flesh and blood. He did not only take on the appearance of true humanity. No, friends, he truly took on the human nature. He fully shares what it is to be human with me and you in every respect with just one exception. Hebrews 4.15 says, He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus has no sin. And that's really different than me and you, friends. All of us are sinners. And please understand that when I say that, I'm not saying that we all start with a blank slate and then just choose to make bad choices. No, no, no. We are born corrupt. We are the heirs of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who rebelled against God in the garden. And after Adam sinned, we read in Genesis 5 verse 3 that when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, in his image. Adam passed his sinful nature down to his descendants, to all of us. So Paul says in Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. 
from the very start of our lives, each of us is an heir of fallen Adam, corrupt, bent towards sin, and under God's judgment of death. That's not true of Jesus. Miraculously, God caused Jesus to be conceived outside of the natural process, virginally. So Jesus did not inherit the corruption and sin that we inherit. As the angel told Mary in Luke 1, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is not conceived a sinner. Jesus was holy from the womb as a result of his miraculous conception. But aside from this issue of sinlessness, in every other respect, God the Son became just like us, a real human. Just like us, he was born a helpless baby. Like us, he grew up. Like us, he knew gladness and sorrow, joy and heartbreak, and ultimately he knew death. He was fully and authentically human in every respect. The Son became a man so that he might experientially understand what it is to be us, to be human. But this brings us to the second reason why Jesus was born. Jesus was born so that he would die, and in so doing, destroy Satan and Satan's evil dominion. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You know, there are lots of voices in our world today that tell us, oh, everything's always getting better. We're marching onwards and upwards towards progress, towards the triumph of mankind. We're going to solve all problems by our ingenuity and technology. We will conquer every obstacle, even death. And the de destiny of the human race is to basically live forever as godlike beings. Friends, that's a lie. And you know that's false if you just pay attention to what's going on around you. Humanity is not becoming more enlightened. We're becoming more evil. Things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. And you, know what, you want to know why that is? It's because this world is under God's judgment. Because humanity rebelled against God. And God is a righteous king who hates evil and judges it. And so creation fell under God's curse because of Adam's sin. One of the ideas we talked about last week is that part of God's judgment on this world is He handed it over to Satan and the demons. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now please understand, I'm not saying that Satan is God's equal. He's not. Satan is not a divine being, but his power over this world is godlike in some ways, which is why in Matthew 4, he makes an offer to Jesus. It shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan can make that offer because he and the demons rule this world. And that's why every society and every culture across world history have one thing in common, which is that they all oppose God and Jesus and the gospel because Satan is pulling the strings. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea from what I'm saying. God is still on his throne in heaven. God reigns over everything absolutely, but God has permitted Satan and the demons to exercise authority over this world as a judgment upon mankind. But the demons remain subject to God's greater supreme rule. 
We see this in Job, right? Satan is not allowed to harm Job without God's express permission. God reigns supremely, but Satan has great power on the earth. And here in Hebrews 2.14, our author calls this the power of death. And there's a reason for that. Because what is Satan's agenda? Jesus tells us in John 8.44, He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. Satan tells lies. Do whatever you want. Sin's no big deal. Follow your heart's desires. Be your authentic self. And where do all these lies lead? To sin. To doing what God has forbidden. Or failing to observe those commands He's given. And where does sin lead? James 1.15 says, Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus says that Satan is a murderer. His goal is to kill us by driving us to sin, which leads to death. And the Bible tells us that because of sin, we all stand under the judgment of three kinds of death. First, we are born under the sentence of physical death. Friends, one day we will all die. That is, our bodies and our souls will separate. Second, we are all born under the sentence of spiritual death. From the start of our lives, we are separated from God, who is the author of life and goodness. And third, if we die physically, while we remain spiritually dead, we will die eternally, subject to God's endless condemnation in hell. And so I hope you see here, our world is in a terrible state. It is under the dominion of Satan, who is a murderer, who lies, hoping to mislead all people into God's unending wrath in hell. We are born in a terrible predicament, which Paul describes in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a predicament. We're dead in our sins, severed from God, dominated by the flesh, dominated by the world, dominated by Satan, earning more and more of God's judgment. But the next two words in Ephesians 2 give us great hope. Because despite all of this awfulness, we read, But God, God has acted. God has intervened in this terrible situation. God the Father has sent God the Son into this world. And why? Hebrews 2.14 says that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All of that horrible situation we just talked about, the wicked dominion of Satan and all his lies, Jesus came into this world to end all of this, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray as the song says. Now, how does Jesus do this? How does he break Satan's dominion over this world? By his death. You know, at Christmas, we think of Jesus the baby. But while Jesus was indeed born a baby, he grew up and he lived a life of sinlessness and perfection, total obedience to God, a life without blemish, that he might be the acceptable sacrifice offered on our behalf to the Father. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, death is tragic. Death always seems like defeat. And Jesus' death would have seemed like a disastrous defeat as he endured the most shameful and painful death imaginable on the cross. But what looked like the defeat of Jesus was actually his triumph. Colossians 2.14 says, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's the demons, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. At the cross, God won victory through Jesus, a victory that has utterly defeated Satan and his demonic order. Because the death of Jesus is God's solution to the wreckage of this world and the problem of sin. And so it is God's means of securing ultimate victory over Satan. Now, to be sure, the demons still fight on today, but their defeat is assured because on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. He offered his life for our place, a sacrifice that the Father accepted. So that endless cycle of sin and death is now disrupted. There is now a way of escape for humanity. There is a door of salvation which has been opened. So Satan, the murderer, and his regime of death are defeated in principle. This leads us now to the third reason why Jesus was born, that he might deliver us from slavery. Look at verse 15 of Hebrews 2. It says, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I told you a minute ago that we are all born slaves of sin. In John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Romans 6 says, You were once slaves of sin, which leads to death. And in our spiritually dead condition, we were indeed slaves of sin. But here in Hebrews 2, we also discover that we were subject to an additional slavery. Slavery of the fear of death. We live in an irreverent culture, don't we? People joke about pretty much everything these days. They throw the terms God, Christ, and Jesus around as profanity. But what don't people joke about today? Death. People speak in hushed, reverential tones about death if we talk about it at all. Our culture tries to hide from death or outrun it or forget it. We think, well, if I just work really hard on maintaining my body, I can cheat death. Or if I just ignore death and put it out of my mind, well, maybe someday it won't happen to me. And what happens when we are forced to face death? We do everything we can to avoid looking it in the eye. By and large, throughout society, we shuffle our sick and dying out of public view. And when they pass, we avoid looking at the body. And when we must look, the bodies are made up to create the illusion that life endures. And when we talk about the dead, we talk about them like they're just on some endless vacation. And friends, all of this is deliberate. It is intentional. Because death is the ugly truth that nobody wants to face. Because for all of our pretension about human triumph, our secular society has no answer to the problem of death. The fear of death is too heavy a thing for us to face. And maybe that's true for some of us here today. That we are afraid to look death in the eye and accept that it is coming for us. But our denial is not going to change reality. It is coming. And how will we face it? With terror? Pretending it's not going to happen? Grasping at every straw to try to avoid it? 
Friends, Jesus came to liberate us from this slavery. He frees us from slavery to sin, and Hebrews 2 says he also frees us from the fear of death. John 8, 36 says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But how does Jesus set us free? Because Jesus didn't simply come to earth to die. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. That isn't the end of the story. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared. Jesus rose from the grave. His dead body came back to life. It was glorified. And He got up and strolled out of the tomb that was meant to encase Him forever. Jesus has conquered death. And we know it's true because He was seen many times after He appeared. Massive crowds saw him. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of a crowd of more than 500 people at once that saw the risen Jesus. He appeared to unbelievers who believed and worshipped him after they saw the risen Jesus. He appeared to his friends who were cowering in the fear of death. But after they saw him, they fearlessly proclaimed him throughout the world and even underwent horrific torture and deaths of martyrdom because they didn't fear death anymore. Because they knew Jesus conquered death by his resurrection. And friends, that's ultimately how Jesus sets us free from the fear of death. Because his resurrection shows us death is not the end. It is not final. It is not lore. Jesus' resurrection gives us a pattern of hope for victory over death. 1 John 3, 2 says, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Those who Jesus saves have this confidence. Just like Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified body, we too will rise from the dead in a glorified resurrection body. And so Jesus was born to die and rise and give us victory over the fear of death. But who benefits from this promise? Look at Hebrews 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Much of this book so far has been about angels, but we learn here. Angels cannot be saved by Jesus' death and resurrection. Likewise, there is no promise of universal salvation for everybody. This passage does not say that Jesus saves all the offspring of Adam. No, on the contrary, many will not be saved. Jesus says in Matthew 7, The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, many are heading for hell. Only a few will find life, Jesus says. But who are those few? Well, they're called here the offspring of Abraham. Now, when we read this, we might think, well, he, our author's talking about the physical descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. But that is not correct. Because the New Testament consistently tells us Salvation is not a question of ethnicity or descent. Those who claim physical descent from Abraham have no leg to stand on before God. Because John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So Hebrews 2.16 is not saying all Israelites are saved and everybody else is out of luck. Say, okay, well, who is a descendant of Abraham? Paul tells us, Plainly, in Galatians 3, 7, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
The true offspring of Abraham are believers. That's who benefits from Jesus' death and resurrection. That is who is set free from slavery and the fear of death and who is set free from the penalty of sin and has the hope of eternal life. All who repentantly believe in Jesus Christ. All who turn off that terrible path that's leading to destruction by turning towards Jesus in faith. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. True faith is defined first by belief in the facts of the gospel. That Jesus is Lord. He is God in human flesh. That He died in our place for our sin and that He has risen from the dead. But faith isn't just intellectual assent to this set of facts because these facts have entailments. They have consequences. If we really believe these things, then we need to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection aren't just abstract truths. We need to personally trust that Jesus has brought us to the Father, that His death has paid for our sins, and that we live in newness of life because of His resurrection. And if we really believe that Jesus is Lord, that He is Almighty God, that means we'd better follow Him, which is exactly what Jesus said as He walked around the earth again and again. Follow me. Friends, that is conversion. The life that was all about me becomes a life subject to Jesus because of who He is and what He's done. There is to be a change of allegiance in our lives from self and sin towards Christ. Am I talking about you today, friend? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Are you deceived by the lies of the world? Go live it up. You only live once, you know. Are you trusting in Jesus alone as the hope of your eternal salvation? Or do you think something else is a solid foundation? Some good work or some other philosophy or religion or your own winning personality? Have you turned aside from a life all about self and sin to follow Jesus? Or are you just doing your own thing, hoping it's all going to work out in the end? Friends, Jesus was born and died because He is our only hope. He is the only means of salvation. And if we do not receive Him as our Lord and Savior now, we will face Him as our condemning judge on the last day. You cannot avoid reckoning with Jesus. Fall on His mercy and live because tomorrow may be too late. And because in Him is life and help. And this is now the fourth reason why Jesus was born. That He might perfectly represent us as our high priest. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 17. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In ancient Israel, a priest was someone who represented people before God. And there was one priest, the high priest, who represented all the people. And one day a year he went into the holiest room in the temple and stood in the very presence of God, bringing a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And what were these sacrifices that the priest and the high priest offered? They were the ritual animal sacrifices of Leviticus, which covered sin. But here in Hebrews we learn that Jesus is the new and better high priest. A high priest not for Israel, a high priest for believers. A high priest who stands not before the presence of God in one room on earth one day a year. But Hebrews 8.1 says, We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
And Jesus, this ultimate high priest, is not like the high priests of old who were themselves sinners. And not only did they offer sacrifices for the people, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Now Jesus is without sin. Hebrews 7 says it is indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is way better than the old priest. And we're told here in Hebrews 2.17, Jesus is faithful. In the Old Testament, a lot of the priests became corrupt. But Jesus is endlessly faithful to the Father. In John 8, he says, I always do the things that please him. And unlike corrupt religious leaders throughout the ages who fleece their followers, Jesus is endlessly faithful to us who depend on him. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. Not only is Jesus faithful, we're also told he's merciful. He reflects the goodness of God to us because God is merciful. In fact, that's one of the main ways God revealed himself in Exodus 34, verse 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Man, Jesus reflects that to us because he is himself God. So he is a merciful high priest. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus stands in the gap connecting God and man. He perfectly reveals God to us, and he perfectly represents us to God. But in order to do this, to fulfill the Father's plan, to connect us to himself through his priesthood, Hebrews 2.17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become one of us, or how else could he represent us before God? The Son had to become truly human, and he did. So he's our high priest. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But how does Jesus act as our high priest? Well, we're told two ways here. First, like the old priests, he offers a sacrifice for sin. But Jesus offers a better sacrifice than anything in the Old Testament. Hebrews 2.17 says he made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, we don't use this word propitiation much today. It means satisfying someone who is deeply offended. Friends, our sins have deeply offended God. In that same passage where God revealed himself to be merciful, he also says this, I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God has a burning anger against sin and sinners, an anger that abides forever if it is not satisfied. But Jesus, our high priest, has offered the supreme sacrifice to appease God's wrath. Hebrews 9.25 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus died for our sins, and not just to cover them, like the Old Testament sacrifices. He propitiates our sin. And that doesn't just mean that he fully turns God's anger away, although he does that. More than that, he satisfies God. He reconciles believers to God. So that when God looks at you, believing friend, he looks at you in happiness and kindness and love and pleasure. Ephesians 2.13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And how near does he bring us? Galatians 4 says that we might receive adoption as sons. 
We are brought into God's own family. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But this is the priesthood of Jesus, who takes vile sinners and makes us the beloved children of God. He has propitiated our sin. But if that's not enough, Jesus' priesthood has another important dimension we see in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus hasn't just solved our sin problem in the abstract. He is a real, ongoing source of help in the trials of life. This Greek word translated tempted can also mean, uh, it does mean temptation, but it sometimes also means like trials or hardships. And friends, Jesus suffered hardship, extreme opposition, betrayal, brutality, mockery, death on the cross. Jesus suffered trials. And his suffering was a temptation, a temptation to escape, to use his supernatural powers to destroy those who crucified him, to avoid death and forego the Father's plan. Remember Gethsemane? Jesus as a true human experienced temptation. He experienced trial, and he overcame. And he overcame and never committed sin. And we're told that because he experienced trial and temptation here, he is a source of endless help to us. Because we face hardship, don't we? We face family crises, or health crises, or financial crises. We suffer the grief of losing loved ones. And man, that's hard to endure, especially in this holiday season. And friends, we suffer spiritual crises too, right? We see terrible things and we say, why? And we doubt. Or we're tempted by the flesh with things that make us feel good or feel important. Or we hear the lies of the world and we think, wouldn't it be better if I just conformed to what the culture tells me? And these are powerful temptations. And when we face hard trials and temptations, we need to know there is one who stands ready and willing to help us, who has shown us the way to endure. Because he faced harder trials and temptations with perfectly obedient faith. And he promises here to give his great help and power to us that we also can endure our hardships with obedient faith. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And Jesus understands the hardship of the human condition. And so he is a very present help to us in times of trouble. Now, all of this then explains the very difficult verse which begins our passage. Look back at Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This he, for whom and by whom all things exist, is the Father. And we read here that it was fitting or necessary to bring many sons to glory, that is to save believers, that the Father had to make the founder of our salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Sounds confusing, right? You might wonder, well, why does this say the Father had to make Jesus perfect? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? We've already said many times today, Jesus is without sin. Jesus shares the divine nature with the Father. Is Jesus not already perfect in himself? Why does he have to be made perfect? Understand that the perfection described in verse 10 is not moral perfection. The idea is not that Christ lacked some moral perfection, which he had to acquire in his human experience. No, the perfection described in verse 10 is related to his vocation. 
his service as high priest. In fact, this Greek verb translated perfect is repeatedly used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of the consecration of priests. It's exactly what it's doing here. What this is saying is that if Jesus is to be our high priest and the essential qualification of Jesus being our high priest is that he experiences the true human condition, then to be qualified, to be consecrated for his priesthood, he must suffer. He must suffer hardship as we do. He must suffer temptation as we do. Friends, that could not happen in heaven above. The son had to experience the terrible reality of hardship on earth as a man. And so to be our high priest, to be able to help those who are being tempted, as verse 18 says, Jesus had to be born. He had to become human. He had to suffer. That's what verse 10 means. And because he became a human and died, verse 10 calls Jesus the founder of our salvation. And the Greek term here means something like the pioneer or the trailblazer. Jesus has cut the path of salvation through this dark world, a path he intends others to follow, the many sons who are being brought to glory that verse 10 talks about. And this now is the last reason we see in this passage why Jesus was born. Jesus was born to be the first of many brothers. Hebrews 2.11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He who sanctifies is Jesus, and those who are sanctified are believers. And the idea here is that we all have one common source, Savior and saved alike. We all now belong to one family. Jesus is the founder, the pioneer of our salvation, and he is our elder brother in the faith. And that's the idea behind the last verses we're going to look at today, these three quotations we find in verses 11 to 13. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The first quotation is from Psalm 22, the great psalm that predicts the death of Christ. The other two quotations come from Isaiah 8, which stands between the two great prophecies of Christmas, the prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah 7, and the prophecy of the child who is born who will become the eternal king in Isaiah 9. And we're told that all of these quotations here in Hebrews 2, although they come from the Old Testament, are also words that Jesus spoke when he considered his mission. Let's start with a quotation in the middle. I will put my trust in him. I mean, Jesus did a lot of amazing things in life, but he was hated. He was betrayed by one of his best friends and deserted by the rest. He knew loneliness. He knew heartbreak. That's why Isaiah calls him the man of sorrows. But Jesus did not despair. He did not turn away from the Father. He did not forsake his ministry. No, he persevered in faith. He trusted the Father. And the result was triumph. He died and rose again, and now he is exalted forevermore. But with what result? Well, look now at the first quotation. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Man, Psalm 22 is an amazing passage. It prophesies in incredible detail the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. It starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Prophesying Jesus' last words. It continues. All who see me mock me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Prophesying the very words that would be used to mock Jesus on the cross. 
The psalm says, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. These words prophesy Jesus' crucifixion 400 years before crucifixion was even invented. They prophesy specific events that happened at the foot of Jesus' cross a thousand years before he died. But after this incredible prophecy, the psalm ends with another prophecy of Jesus' resurrection and glory. And that's where this quote comes from. That says Jesus would live again to proclaim God's salvation to a congregation. See, Jesus dies and rises from the dead to form a people for his own possession. The community of believers. And we read here that Jesus regards believers as his own brothers. That's the same idea we find in the last quotation from Isaiah 8. Behold, I and the children God has given me. In Isaiah 8, the prophet uses these words to speak of himself and his children as a sign before the unbelieving world. Same idea is present here. Jesus has established a people, a congregation, a family of faith for the world to look at and consider. That unbelievers might reconsider their sin and come to salvation and escape the judgment of God. Friends, Jesus died to establish this family the universal church of all who come to salvation, a family that belongs to God, that enjoys God's grace and endless love, that receives the benefit of Jesus' high priestly ministry, and he forgives our sins and helps us in the hardest moments of life. So to conclude, friends, my first question to us today is this. Are you a part of this family? Do you know God in a saving way through Jesus? Have you faced the truth of your sins? Do you acknowledge that you have rebelled against God in thought and deed? Do you understand that one day you will stand before Jesus for judgment? Do you acknowledge that your works deserve God's boundless wrath forever? Have you turned aside from the life that endlessly seeks self and sin to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior on the basis of his deity, death, and resurrection? Friends, there is no other path of salvation. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he tells us how to be saved in Mark 1, 15, when he says, repent and believe the gospel. No good work, no church membership, no religious deeds, no other path can commend you to God. Only faith in Jesus. Taking him at his word, believing he is who he said he was, God in the flesh, that he died for your sins. And he is risen and ruling today from heaven as Lord and high priest. Friend, trust in Jesus. And you will find great help. You will find forgiveness. And you will find brothers and sisters in the faith. If you don't know Jesus in a saving way, I plead with you. Cast yourself on his mercy and live. But today, if you do know Jesus, I want to give you three closing exhortations. First, life is hard. When you face hardship, don't run away from God. Draw near in prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because that throne of grace, Jesus is sitting on it. And he is a source of endless, eternal, loving power to help his people. Second, when things get tough, don't walk away from the faith. Instead, remember the example of our elder brother and our great pioneer Jesus. 
Hebrews 12.2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus faced something far worse than anything you or I will ever face. And in the face of that, he endured with absolute, unflinching obedience to the Father. He is the supreme example of trusting the Lord. And how did he do it? We were told he believed God's promise that he would enjoy immense joy if he persevered. The joy of saving many sons and daughters. The joy of saving you. And so for our sake, the joy of getting to bring us all with him, he endured, he triumphed, and now he's glorified. And so friends, likewise, we must endure. We must walk by faith. When hard times come, remember the joy that's been promised you. Eternal bliss in the company of Jesus and all believers forever. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose your faith. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And victory will ultimately be yours in him because he has triumphed. But finally, friends, let us rejoice. In this Christmas season, it's really easy to get wrapped up in everything other than Jesus. Maybe we get distracted by negative stuff, commercialism, being busy, and news headlines. Maybe we get distracted by positive stuff. Family and fun and friends and food and football and presents. But whether the things that would distract you would either rob your joy or make you very happy, don't forget that in the end, this season exists to get us to remember Jesus, God the Son who became a human like us, to conquer Satan and his wicked dominion, to liberate us from slavery to sin and the fear of death, to be our great high priest to bring us into his family by his death and resurrection. Friends, remember Jesus, love Jesus, and honor Jesus today, tomorrow, and every other day after that, or every day after that. For Romans 11.36 says, From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever.